Utah is powered by the Seneca Network. We are bi-weekly podcasts focused on capturing the lives of women in and from Greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. This week, we have the chance to hear from Mei Zhang, founder of Wild China, a trend-setting travel company based in Beijing. Mei has built Wild China into one of the best travel companies, according to National Geographic. Passionate about unlocking authentic travel experiences for a forever curious Chinese traveler, in 2011, Mei began another endeavor, Beishan Travel, introducing a chic travel lifestyle to sophisticated Chinese. She's also an acclaimed writer, putting pen to paper with Travels Through Dolly with a Leg of Lamb. We chat about conservation in China, her first foray as an interpreter, and how her fondness for her hometown, Dali Yunnan, has evolved over time. Let's listen in. So hello to all the listeners from Ta for Ta. Really excited today. We have Zhang Mei, the founder of Wild China, as well as the author of Travels Through Dolly with a Leg of Ham. I have to say, May, I am so excited to have you on the show today. There is really a lot that we have to cover, and I think that you'll do a better job of kicking things off than I will. So I was hoping that you could tell listeners a little bit more about the path to where you've gotten today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks for the introduction. So let's see, where do I start? Well, I have been in travel industry for the past 19 years. It sounds a very big number and very scary. This was all an unintended career path uh, out of business school. But you never know, you know, sometimes you feel like in life there's a passion that becomes a sense of calling that you just feel like you're still enjoying it and discovering the joys of the job. And um, I still find it very interesting every day. So why not? Right. Going all the way back, though, I, I grew up in southwest China uh, in a small town called Dali. That's why I wrote a book about that area later on and went to school there and was very fortunate very early on. I was one of the very few people who came over to attend business school when nobody in China really knew what business school was about. Uh, I graduated in 1996, so, and then worked in consulting for a couple of years before I started the business in 2000. And um, it's been a very simple resume since then. <laughs> Some would say. I actually, I want to go all the way back with you. And can you just tell me a little bit more about what it was like growing up in Dali? What your what was your childhood like? <laughs> you know, now I've found willing ears. I might talk your ears off because my kids don't want to hear <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, As a quick um, aside, May is uh, taking very generous amount of time because she is going to be cooking dinner after this. I'm wondering if you're going to be making some great Yunnan cuisine. I adore. I think that might be my favorite cuisine in China. Well, I agree. I think the, the food from Yunnan is so good. And I'm just, <laughs> I think I'm very fortunate to be um, endowed with this wonderful tradition, beautiful memories of Yunnan. 
um, not by my own choosing, just simply by growing up there. Um, so I always tell people when we plan a trip to China, I say Yunnan. Yunnan is the name of the province where I'm from. I would always say Yunnan is the most beautiful places in China to visit. It's not one of, it's the. But truth be told, when I was growing up, it didn't quite feel that way. It, um, you know, it's landlocked in the mountains in southwest China. It, um, we always felt we were, you know, very primitive. We didn't have any of the machine-made clothes or the um, modern things of Shanghai. But things there was just lots of nature, lots of sunshine. And I felt people there were just very content with a very slow pace of life. You know, people would go, my dad, for example, would go to the fresh market every day and buy a little bit of cilantro, 20 cents of cabbage and carve off a little meat from that's hanging, drying in the, in the house somewhere. And they would, there we go. That was dinner. Only years later did I realize that way of growing up is what people now aspire to have. You know, that, that way of cooking was called farmed table. And, <laughs> and that slow pace of life is a slow living that everyone from New York aspires to have. So we didn't know what we had. I mean, that, that was the um, idyllic side. On the other side, of course, there was uh, poverty. Uh, we were very, very poor, very little money to go around the whole household. It's probably a couple of dollars for the entire family to survive for the month. So um, it made you appreciate everything you have. You know, the way I would shave off the skin on ginger before I cook always surprises my kids. They would use one of the the skinner, like for potatoes, to shave off the ginger, I, I would use a knife use a, to... I was going to say, do you use a spoon, but you use a knife? I use a knife, but you scrub, scrub to thinly scrub off the top surface rather than slice off a piece that will lose more of the ginger. You know, just little mm. things that you grow up with stay with you for life. And um, and I, I find that a blessing Never did I think that was a liability. I mean, when I was young, probably, that was a liability. <laughs> so it seemed like there was a lot of value in simplicity that has extended into the way that you view the world now. Do you also think that your parents or important people in your life gave you this value of the importance of education? Or where did that come from? Oh, um, absolutely. Um mm. I, I think one of the benefits of growing up in China that a lot of people in the West don't realize is a sense of equality between men and women. And it's quite odd thing to say because most stereotyped image of China would be, you know, women would have bound feet or always work in the kitchen. And But our generation, I grew up in the 70s, and um, our generation, my dad always told me, men, women, you each hold up half of the sky. And whatever your brothers can do, you can as well. So there was never a sense of inadequacy. And my father was a worker. Uh, he's not retired. But he always emphasized, he said, the only way out 
is is education, and he was willing to move、um, from a small town of Dali and move to Kunming. And money goes a lot less、um, in Kunming; it's just a more expensive city. But he would make that move and you know lead a、um, tighter budget life so that we could have a better education. And because to him that was the only way out. And all of those definitely shaped shaped me. Did he also encourage you to become an interpreter? <laughs> so, my childhood dream. The entire middle school, I had a biography of Madame Curie on my desk. Oh, okay, that okay. was my idol. Why? Because at that time, China had a phrase. 学会数理化，走遍天下都不怕。Right? If you、hmm. have math, chemistry, and physics, you can walk the globe. Basically, so everyone wants to become a scientist. That was the glorious path to success. I wanted to be a scientist. I loved the sense of acquiring knowledge under the shade of a lamp at a little desk. I felt that that was the best way to live. And I wanted to be really good in math, particularly when people tell you girls start to lose their, you know,、uh, capability to advance intellectually after middle school. Something there was this saying: after puberty, girls get distracted. And I didn't want any of the prophecy to become true in me, so I wanted to become a scientist. And my dad instead decided that I should apply to this language school. It, uh, it's the foreign languages school at Yunnan University, instead of a normal high、mm. school.、Um, honestly, because they actually pay a per diem for me to study there, but my dad insisted on that, and he knew the only way to sell it to me was that it was really hard to get into. I couldn't get in, so I had to get in. I got into that school. I got accepted. My file got pulled by got pulled by the school, so that means I couldn't. Enter the normal high school track. I cried and cried. I was like,、oh. "You just killed a future Madame Curie." <laughs> and his <laughs> theory was, if you have English language, you can at least be a secretary. And I said, "Great,、mm. so practical." Still today, I make fun of him for making that decision for me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so then you study English and law, and then you were an interpreter for a while, and then you had this momentous dinner with a Thai bank. Well, and what you happened know then? Quite a bit. <laughs>、yeah. I do my research. <laughs> It was before I took my job assignment after college graduation. Okay, I was you know everybody back then get a job. Assigned by the government, and I was invited to stay at Yunnan University, which I graduated from、uh, for undergrad.、Uh, I was invited to stay and teach, and I felt completely inadequate. I said, "I'm so young. I, you know, still have so much to learn. I'm far from being able to teach." So I wasn't quite happy with that job assignment, but it's a it it it's a prestigious job. It looks good, 
And I didn't have any other alternative. But before I took the job up in September, graduated in June, uh, July, job was coming up in September, I was freelancing a lot. And uh, one of these freelancing gigs was for a Thai bank. Oh. That was opening up a branch in Yunnan. And so it was at Kunming Hotel, and uh, I freelanced for the bank for two days as an interpreter just to make a little extra money. And the last dinner, I was not going to go, but they somehow convinced me. They said, you know, I didn't have a formal job assignment for that evening. I said, you know, I'm going to go home. They said, no, 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 just any event you have, you have a good beginning, then you have a good closure. So I went. Mm. And it's one of those very um, sort of moments in life that you don't know it would change your life. Um, it was a, a, a dinner hall of 400 people, so like 10 people each table, many, many tables there. And, Pretty significant um, size, but not too crazy for China. <laughs> right, not too crazy, but it's big enough that you actually get on stage with a mic and, yeah. to speak to the crowd. And the president of the Thai bank, Mr. Siring Nimahemi, um, was very happy about opening his branch in China. That was early. That was in 93. Mm. Right? And um, he wanted to give a spontaneous thank you note on stage. And it wasn't quite written in the official program. So there were a few official interpreters there from the Foreign Affairs Office. None of them wanted to do it because it there was no script. And so they all pointed at me. They said, like, you know, little Zhang, I was very young. Um, the little Zhang, you, she could do it. She, she's capable and, and uh, she's good. Let her go up. Hmm. So I went up there and I didn't really care because it was a job. And I interpreted for him. He made a joke in English. I somehow interpreted the meaning and the audience laughed. It went well. And then we came down from stage to have dinner. And he asked me, he said, sit next to me. You know, this official, this interpreter can, can go to the next table. And so I replaced the official interpreter and sat next to him. Then he started asking me questions about, you know, what my plan is for the future. And and uh, I didn't know. And then afterwards, he offered me to say, my bank gives scholarships and we'll give you the scholarship to go to Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok. I said, well, thank you, but no thank you. I, I actually, I was going to go to Johns Hopkins program in Nanjing. And, mm. and he said, well... Look, these people at the table are my, you know, SVPs or vice president of scholarship, SVP of international development. Let's have a meeting afterwards, after dinner. So after dinner, we reconvened uh, a small group of seven, five, seven people. And he said, I thought about it. Uh, I'm going to send you to Harvard. And you can study anything you want. And I'm, I, I just, I just remember, like, I was so much in shock. Initially, I said, "How about anthropology?" And <laughs> that, that was the only subject that I knew that was interesting to me. Uh, and he thought about it, and he said, "Well, maybe not. How about business school?" 
very gentle but firm guidance along the path that he saw for me. And I just started bawling. I started crying. I'm like, this is not happening. You know, we were making $20 a month. Uh, how am I ever going to be able to pay for this? He said, well, just make sure you can get yourself in. We'll pay for it. And the rest is history. Wow. Yeah. I, I literally thought I was the Cinderella, not finding the prince, but like, you know, finding the fairy godmother who's going to give me a different world. And That sounds by, almost better. <laughs> but by by midnight... Everything's going to turn into the pumpkin. So I kept pinching myself and like, no, it's not real. (laughs) Did you feel pressure to get in or was that a huge motivating factor for you because it took off the monetary pressure if you were able to to create a compelling application and, and enroll in business school at Harvard? Well, I had no idea how hard it would be. Mm. I just thought now that there is, you know, financial resource to do it. There was no other way to think about my future, but to give this one path my best. I didn't know how hard it was to get in. I didn't know what it involved. Uh, Once I got down the path of writing applications, actually typing applications on the manual typewriter, and I didn't know that Other people were writing applications on the computer. Other people were writing about their business management experiences of a multi-million dollar business while I was writing about my ethical dilemma of a maybe $100 decision. So I had no reference of the world, which is very helpful, actually, (laughs) because when you don't know, you don't know what to fear. Mm. How did your perspective change when you came out to, to Harvard and got your degree? I don't think perspectives changed as much, but all of a sudden you realize the world is a lot bigger. And it actually, I, I think Harvard is a great place to open your mind. And your mind is now like you have, uh, you're given a new set of eyes. You are seeing the world from very different lens, which is hugely exciting. It's um, it's a once-in-a-lifetime sort of experience to be looking at the world completely new, right? Mm-hmm. But it comes, the blessing comes with a curse because before you probably had a pair of glasses over your eyes and that is not very clear and you, you, you don't... Like I mentioned, when you don't see, when you don't know what's in front of you, even if it's a tiger in front of you, they say charge ahead because you don't know it's a tiger, you charge ahead. Now you do see everything much more clearly. And it can be intimidating. It can be sort of like, whoa, you know, where am I in this world? My classmates came from Rockefeller family, came from the Benetton family. I came from nothing. Where do you go from here? Um, the world became a lot more colorful, a lot more in focus and sharp, but can also be kind of scary. Mm. So without maybe skipping ahead too much, you had this incredible experience. It seems like your eyes were opened in different ways. And then, dare I say, you, you moved on to a traditional path. You became a consultant at McKinsey. And... During your time there, what 
change? What made you decide, I want to go back to China, I want to focus on travel? What prompted that next step? Mm. I I think it's three years of muddling, of searching in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) See, um, I think... I think the, the same, along the same theme of what I just said, Harvard gave you a much bigger world. And the world is, is your oyster, really. It's, it's, you're so blessed to have all the options open to pick, right? This is for the first time in life if I thought I'd like to become a banker. I could be one. I'd like to become an executive at a Fortune 500 company. I could possibly get a job like that. I wanted to go into movie industry. Like every door is slightly open Mm. for you. You can just decide to push and walk in. Because there are so many doors open, you don't know which door to go, to turn to. And therefore, I took a path that is for the ones <laughs> who couldn't decide which door to open, to push. And I, I thought consulting would somehow allow me to open each door a little bit and take a peek behind and say, oh, is this what I liked inside? If not, I'll back out. It's a low-risk investment in, in my point of view back then, right? And that actually is also a great opportunity. But after two years of doing that, uh, I actually couldn't decide which path I wanted to go on further. But there was one thing I knew I always wanted to do when I had the financial freedom, which was traveling the world. This was something that was in me in college time, that was in me way back when yeah, at United University, when I saw these American kids who could come to study overseas for a semester and over holidays, they carry a backpack to explore these little villages in China. I've always wanted to do that, but I didn't have the money, nor the time, nor the means to do so. Mm. Um, so I did exactly that. I took a sabbatical off from McKinsey and just went around the world Six months, I went from Dunhuang to Kashgar to Pakistan border and went overland uh, up onto the Tibetan plateau. Basically across the Silk Road. Kailash, Nepal, and just loved it. Six months of seeing the world I've always wanted to see. And came back finding a new energy to sort of try to do something. That's when I went on a consulting project uh, on behalf of McKinsey, uh, went all the way back to Yunnan. McKinsey was doing a pro bono study for the Nature Conservancy. Mm. And the Nature Conservancy was helping Chinese government, particularly Yunnan government, my home province, in figuring out if we wanted to build a national park here, what happens to the economy, the local population? Can they still do farming or would their life change? What can they do? After that study, I was convinced, convinced China's tourism would take off immediately on a tangent. 
And particularly if GDP reaches a certain level, the traveling among Chinese population would take off at extraordinary speed. Uh, we were not there, but somehow the modeling was telling me loud and clear. And I could also see market segmentation immediately. Um, but it, not, not that I could see it immediately, but I could see it in the very near future. Because Chinese travel market at that time, the product was very, um, it was very boring. There was one product. There was Beijing, Xi'an, Yancy Cruz, <laughs> Guilin, Shanghai. And, and I said, these tour buses are great for the mass market. But what about people who are demanding a bit more in-depth access to the country? What happens to people who uh, are busy, they don't have time, and they want to stay at nicer hotels or have a real local meal, like you were, we were talking about Yunnan food, um, that they don't want to eat at tourist restaurants. They don't want to eat at those. Uh, they don't want to stop at the tourist trinket shops. What about them? Who is serving them? The industry is poised to take off. There's no market segmentation. There's very little understanding what this more high-end traveler's needs could be. And there was internet, a new tool that would connect China to the rest of the world. It's almost like every element was ready except someone to do it. So I had no choice but to do it. The market was prime for you and you saw an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 destined to do it, I felt. You felt gravitated to it. I want to get your opinion on one of these things related to something you mentioned. I think you've said that development can overrule conservation. Can we talk about this almost inherent tension in, in China's growth that is related to some of the the work that you do and the changes you've probably experienced over the course of your life. Mm. This is a, a very hard topic. I know. That I think not just me, but many of us struggle with. And sometimes I wonder if we're doing good or bad. Just to walk back on the the decision to go more high-end, that time, my research as a McKinsey consultant, <laughs> really going very deep, visiting small little places in Yunnan, talking to the local a mushroom uh, forager, or tea maker, or walnut milk producer, farmer. Um, we came to a very clear understanding that if you if you build mass tourism or if you bring in like tons of travelers in this region, the threats to the biodiversity as well as uh, very rich ethnic culture would be pretty pretty harsh. Mm. And so we recommended an approach to set Yunnan aside, say, look at all of China. If you develop Yunnan as a high-end destination for um, in-depth learning experiences, let's say you run eco-camps, you run like botany education, you run um, poetry seminars, you, you run it as a destination with a lot more 
um, soft content, you would attract a population that would pay more, stay longer, and probably a little less environmental impact on the destination. But what we suggested required a much more sophisticated uh, workforce and marketing scheme. Basically, the local government tells us what you're suggesting will be very slow in building, uh, takes a lot of investment in capacity building, and does not create immediate a large amount of jobs and GDP impact. Their assessment is spot on. They are absolutely correct. And so, so they said, no, that, that's not where we're going to go. Instead, the models for what we later on know, Li Jiang's success, uh, was right starting at about the same time, uh, building cable cars up to Yulong, the uh, Jade Dragon Mountain, and building massive tourism infrastructure. Very quickly um, changed Lijiang and lifted Lijiang out of poverty in no time. Um, and I think the positive impact is obvious. Yunnan is regarded one of the most desired tourist destinations in China. And GDP per capita impact is huge. A huge amount of population are lifted out of poverty and um, are thriving. At the same time, the impact is also clear. All over China, everyone's copying the success of Lijiang model. So now you go to all Chinese towns, they all look kind of like Lijiang, and they all um, have this Liu游小镇, uh, huge income, but honestly, I think very little character. There's no mm. product differentiation. And Lijiang town itself now has 40 million annual visitorship. Wow. Just to put that in perspective, Orlando, Florida has 20 million. Lijiang small old town has 40 million. A year. And that's just a tiny part of a city in a pro it's for listeners that have not been to Lijiang it's the old town part is just a part of this entire city and so that's just blows my mind yeah I didn't know that it's probably a portion of lower Manhattan exactly yeah that has its benefit actually I'm thankful because tourists particularly large volume bus tourists or concentrate in certain venues, certain restaurants, the old towns. They, they don't actually venture out much. So the benefit is if you're willing to walk half an hour out of town, it's pristine and beautiful. Mm. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's talk about a few good examples that I think you reference sometimes. I believe Shashi, a, a city in Yunnan, a Swiss architect, had worked on a few restoration projects there. I'm curious why you think that that is a good example. Um, or um, Pudatsuo Park is also considered a really good model for, for ecotourism in Yunnan. I think Shashi has... Shashi developed later, later than Dali Old Town and Lijiang Old Town. Later by about, just on top of my head, I would say by about 10 years in, in developing tourism facilities. 
And by then, um, more local decision makers are much more aware of possible damage that the old development model could bring. And humans, we are all in a learning process, right? Um, before, 20 years ago, if people were talking about rebuilding an old town, they were talking about tearing down the old and building a brand new building that looks old, but painted shiny paint. That was the old model of building an old town, developing tourism, tourist towns. But by the time Shaxi's tourism was ready to take off, the, the general learning in this area has changed. If you are rebuilding the old town, you really are advised to keep the old as old and simply clean it up and make it safe. And if there's any missing part that requires a new building, you build new and let it look new. The contrast itself is is beautiful in a way. Now, this kind of conservation concept, I think, is a gradual learning process. One of the the, the Swiss conservationist who worked on Shaxi under the funding for from World Monument Fund definitely contributed in the early years of challenging the established thoughts back then. And in some ways, it made his job hard because he had to say no to some of the officials' plans on how to rebuild the old town. But because he said enough no, after he left, it was easier um, one of his early collaborator, uh, a Chinese uh, gentleman, later on actually stayed on in Shaxi, um, Mr. Huang Yingwu, and he carried out conservation work with more funding from the government and funds raised locally. And they were able to carry out re- uh, conservation in the, along the same line of thoughts. So when you go to Shaxi, you can really tell old is old and it doesn't look like a whole movie set that is built new. That's one thing. And also, they probably had to experiment more if we want to keep Shashi alive. They had to invest more in working with local communities to make sure the traditions are alive. For example, one of the tradition is folk song singing because Shashi has a ancient stage, just to take a step back, Shashi traditionally was a hub for the Southern Silk Road, which is also called the Tea and Horse Caravan Road, that was a important mountain path. It's not really a highway, it's a, it's a footpath for foot traffic and uh, horse caravans, transporting tea crew, um, um, tea from southern Yunnan, as well as salt produced in central Yunnan, on horsebacks all the way up over the mountains and valleys into the Tibetan plateau. Right? So that was an important trading route. And Shashi itself was an important trading town. It was a hub, so all the caravans would come there with their salt, with their fleet of horses and they rest because the valley is 
fertile and it's flat. It's a much milder climate compared to the mountain passes they have to travel. So people stay there with the ancient stage. Entertainment was an important thing for pastime. Folks on singing and performance on stage was a very important element of the local tradition. So the conservation really involved、uh, conserving the folks on singing traditions of Jiantuan area. That's the area that Shashi Village is based in. That became a. It, it was quite successful. That now when you go to Shashi area, you're not seeing a completely、uh, reproduction of local traditions by the travel industry. Not at all. the The local farmers still farm the same way. You can still go to a farmer's house and、um, join them in folk song singing or join them in preparing a meal. So it feels more authentic that you can have a slice of local life without participating in a tourist production and without infringing too much on the lifestyle and the people and that location and of itself. It's such an interesting, interesting story. But I think、story. you do change as a traveler. You walk into people's homes.、Mm. You absolutely are changing the local way of living. But I, I would like to think it's more positive. I'll give you one、mm. example. I went to yeah this、uh, lady. Her name is Shifu Mei, and she I found her five years ago as a、uh, just a local. Woman farmer who stays home to work the fields, and she also makes cheese in、um, in the evenings. And they have their own cow, and she, so she makes cheese from their own milk. And cheese making is one of the by traditions in that area, which surprises a lot of people. So I wanted to, her to show me how to do that. And five years ago, when I first saw her. She found me a little strange. She's like, "Why would you want to see how I make cheese?" I said, "You know, because I think it's important." So I brought my photographer. We took pictures of her process and put profiled her in my book. But at that time, she did not know how to interact with me. She was simply doing her thing. If I asked her to stop for me to take a photo, she would. But She would tell me a little bit about her life, but it was a, a simple, more one-sided appreciation of her life. I went back last December, five years later. She was super happy to see me because in between, she's been able to use her cheese making demonstration as a way to service some small number of travelers, sometimes three times a day in peak season. And、um, she was able to generate income to supplement her farming income, and she became a much better host. She was showing me how to make cheese again. This time, she handed me the ladle and said, "Try it." You know, much more interactive. So I think the the fact that more travelers come to her house to appreciate her to appreciate her lifestyle and admire her cheese making or her way of living. Made her proud to keep her keep her tradition, rather than embarrassed about her life. That makes a lot of sense. Now I have to ask: Did the collection of all these little stories from Shifu Mei and many other people that you encountered during building out the travel itineraries and building out Wild China? Is that what spurred you to author a book? Very much so. 
Yeah, very much so. I think it was the magic of travel. You know, after you, initially you travel, you look for novelty. You kind of like you go to Patagonia. You go, wow, this landscape is so different. You look for differences. You know, you look for exoticity. After a while, I realized I actually enjoy quite a lot going back to familiar places because each time I go back, I talk to the same person, but this person's life has changed. This person's Perspective has changed, and in seeing their life's changes, it gives me a much richer understanding of the place that is familiar. And so, for me, traveling back to Yunnan has that kind of magic component. Is I know these scenic sites. I don't go to the scenic sites all the time, but I go to live with people. Even though it could be a stranger, I I spend in two hours, three hours with a different person. I'm trying to explore why traveling back in Yunnan makes me feel very relaxed and fulfilled, and so I realize it's 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 because Yun people in Yunnan invest time with their visitors, and they themselves invest time in their way of living. As I mentioned earlier, the way they cook, the way someone is preparing dried beans or a pickle or something—they take time in doing things, and things that are forged with time have a beautiful quality to them. Whether it's friendship or it's a meal or it's a leg of ham, so I wanted to explore that, and I said, "How do I express this?" I don't know how to express it. <laughs> so I struggled with it for some time. This is the question I think I've been wanting to ask you all podcasts: is why a leg of ham? <laughs> <laughs> I bet you get asked that all the time. No, because people think it's weird and random. <laughs> But is But, I I don't I actually have some theories about it, and I I've just started reading the book myself. But but please please go ahead. <laughs> so so the leg of ham to me. In my entire childhood, was sing- signaled a good life, an abundant life, a leg. In- imagine it's not a few slices, but it's an entire leg you can eat for half a year. So it's a good life. But with this good life, if I take it and share with people, that will allow me invite myself into their kitchen, and. People in China never go to someone's house empty-handed, right? So, so I bring a chunk of ham and say, they will always invite me for dinner. And I say, well, why don't you show me how you cook with ham? And in writing their recipes of how the leg of ham, how how they cook ham, it gives me a vehicle, a time, and a space that is honestly the heart and soul of each family. It's the kitchen. You get access to the kitchen, then you get access to their stories, their headaches of oh, the child is trying to get into college, and we're worried as worried as those in New York, and the mother-in-law is falling ill, and so the siblings are trying to discuss who's going to pay how much to support the mother-in-laws through the hospital stay. Same kind of conversations we have in America here, and so the leg of ham. 
opens up a different conversation, opens up their very sacred, safe space, invited me in, and I wanted to explore that space and see if that's the magic of travel. And to me, it is. It totally is. So I wanted to write this book that is not exactly a travel guide at all, not a exact memoir either, and not so much partially a cookbook. So it's a bit of each mm-hmm. memoir, cookbook, a travel book, and a story of the people, and also beautiful pictures of the area that I love. All encapsulated in one. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have to ask you uh, uh, one more question that I think you have a unique perspective on. So there's this very famous book, The Lost Horizon, that really catapulted the idea of Shangri-La or Shangri-La into popular Western imagination. But in Yunnan province, do you see that there's a different lost horizon? I think there is the same lost horizon. Mm. There's actually a physical area and also a metaphorical area, I guess, culturally, uh, that is the Shangri-La. I'm not referring specifically to the town that was renamed as Shangri-La, but in that corner of the world, it is some of these villages that I went to does accommodate people of different religion, Tibetan Buddhism, Christianity, Muslim. Um, they coexist in one little village and live peacefully as neighbors side by side. They may share a meal with each other, or if I'm short of onion for dinner tonight, I'll go to your house to get some. It's it's the kind of harmonious relationship. The book Lost Horizon was was documenting, and I actually don't think he dreamed it up. I've mm. seen it mm. with my own eyes. Um, but this this worrying part is this kind of lifestyle is increasingly threatened it's not that i don't think people there should live a better material life i think everybody has the right to demand a flush toilet um a a, you know temperature controlled warm sunlit room no one deserves to live in a dark old house. But in the process of pursuit of that modern apartment, how much are we willing to lose? And in fact, can we find a way of keeping traditions without without having to give up a better way of living? I think it's possible. It's just we'd have to experiment a little bit. I lament this because there's this specific village called Tsuzhong. For anybody who's been to that corner, knows Tsuzhong has a hundred-year-old church. And when I went there 20 years ago at the start of my Wild China business, it was this most beautiful, out of this worldly beautiful. We came down from the mountains 
to the valley by the Mekong River, and there was Tsuchong Village with giant walnut trees next to the old church and Tibetan houses. The cooking smokes were rising, and dogs were barking, chickens running around. It's like this most idyllic, beautiful village that was Shangri-La for me. And I was just there two weeks ago. I can't tell you how disappointed. I cried. Really? So sad. So sad. It was like this entire stretch of construction of modern buildings. And uh, the church was buried somewhere in the back. And it looked just like any of these other Chinese towns you've seen that has signs of... You know, uh, China Mobile shop here and uh, a business hotel there and uh, <laughs> a Sichuan restaurant down the street and a hair salon and a karaoke. Those moments must be so bittersweet for you. Do you... It, Of course, the bitter makes sense, but the sweet knowing that... Does the work that you do feel more, more relevant, more important? important more salient when you you realize that without the type of work that you're doing you're, you're just doing good work I I don't know there, there was, how do you feel I, th- I think the sweetness was only was only that wow we were so lucky that we mm. experienced something like this and we are still able to create or curate experiences like this. I think the sweet part is seeing Shufu Mei being able to make a living in her same house, sharing what she's good at. That was the sweet part. But seeing Tsuchong was purely bitter. Yeah. And bitter in the sense of seeing that, I think it's destruction, that I was disappointed. But also, more importantly, I'm, I'm disappointed that we can't do enough that I haven't done enough. Maybe if I build the business large enough that more people hear about what we have to say about what makes a travel experience beautiful, maybe we could change some people's mind. Maybe the local government wouldn't build the new town of Tsuchong like that. So I saw it almost like, oh man, we failed. I wish wish we were more successful. What? Do you think is next for for Wild China? Well, I'm a forever optimist, <laughs> which which is good. Um, that is so, a good thing. Yeah. So I see the the places that I've always loved these villages and national parks. I think the younger generation, uh, growing up, young generation of Chinese travelers have a much bigger appetite for a non-touristy, non-industrialized travel experience. Um, but the industry hasn't quite caught up. So the the younger generation are looking for places to hike, to camp, to bring their you know, young babies to experience nature, more immerse themselves in nature and culture. I see the demand of the next generation almost in the same way that I saw 
the lack of supply 20 years ago. So now, with that demand, it gives me much hope if we work successfully with travel suppliers to create. Imagine if China, one day in the national parks that I really like, if we could create a state-of-the-art visitor center that would give you an artistic experience of the park, and would have hiking trails and. Um, camping permits um, with cell phones interpreting the plants that you know that would give access to thousands and tens of thousands of travelers going into nature and experience nature and and culture. That would be the Chinese national park experience I would die for. We don't have that. We have a ticket and. A electric bus to the viewing point, take a photo back on the bus, sort of set route operation now in China. But I'm working towards that vision that would give hiking trails, give the next generation a park that they can enjoy. That gets me so excited, and I think it's incredible vision and really important. What is occupying your time right now? Oh, these new initiatives. Plenty. (laughs) Uh, I I think I'm so lucky because I have a wonderful business partner, Albert In, uh, who's been my partner for, business partner for 19 years. And I also have a very solid um, uh, top management who has been in the business for more than a decade or 12 years onwards. And they really make the day-to-day operation of Wild China run very effectively. And every client builds towards the reputation of a good service. So we are lucky to have that stability, which allows me to be freed up to think more on the changing industry. Uh, where is Wild China's next step? Exactly the questions you're asking. And I also spend part of my time to um, help the industry to run. I launched this thing called Wild China Academy. It's really uh, teaching travel trip designers how to be customer-centric in offering services, how to create a better experience for their travelers. Because I feel like this is such a, if you want to do tailor-made travel, if you want to do experiential travel, it always feels very fragmented and small. You are never as big as a online OTA. So it feels like we're all organic farmers. And for us to all grow healthy products, healthy vegetable or healthy experiences, we need to do a lot of knowledge sharing, common market access building. So I spend more time to work with the upcoming uh, young travel designers to help build a community there. That's super exciting. And I'm hoping to follow those developments and see how it all builds. I think you're so right in building an ecosystem of people and resources where the, the effects can really multiply. So that's very exciting to hear about. Yeah. I think our eco camp, eco center or nature center, um, where I can run all these education programs should be coming online later this year. 
So, um, yeah, do check back with us. Okay, we'll do. I'd love to share. I'm so excited about it. So I think, May, <laughs> I'm going to close this out with one last question for you about, you know, what is one piece of advice that someone has given you over the course of your life, whether it be professional or personal, that you found yourself recently giving to someone else? So what's something that someone told you that has stuck with you and you found yourself passing that wisdom on? Mm, I think two pieces, actually. One is when I was first starting the business, I wondered if I should also get pregnant and have kids. As a woman entrepreneur, those questions come quick. And I was talking to this wonderful lady, Laura Cha. She probably doesn't even remember that conversation anymore. Very successful lady who ran the Hong Kong Stock Exchange for a few years. I asked her, I, I said, is there a right time? And she said, May, in life, there is never the right time to have kids because you will always find something that, well, well there is never the right time to, to do something. But when it feels right, you should just do it and the rest of it will come together. And I think that's true to have when it comes to having kids. That's true when it comes to getting married. That's true when it comes to starting a business. There is never a time like, you know, I mean, my 40s now is like, oh, is it too late to start another business? There's never the right time. You make it right. I think, I think so. that's a great piece of advice to end on and something that can really resonate with so many of us. So I wanted to thank you so much for the time. This has really been a delight. The way you tell stories is just so enthralling and really draws me in. And I hope that it's also drawn everybody in the same way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And good luck with the podcast. I think it's a tremendous thing you're doing too. Thank you so much. To help all of us. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo for co-producing and Jace McRonald for editing. Also, make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I really do enjoy listening to the other shows on here. I also love hearing from listeners, so send your questions, comments, general musings my way at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.